epilogue to Crossing the Switchblade. Since then, it was 50 years ago this year, in 1958, that I started working with gangs and addicts in New York City. Since then, teen challenge centers have opened all over the world. These gospel-centered rehabilitation programs provide care for thousands of drug addicts and alcoholics. The documented recovery rate among those who finish the Teen Challenge program is exceptionally high. After more than a decade of ministry with Teen Challenge in the 1970s, I began conducting youth meetings. My travels took me around the world to hold evangelistic crusades. Our ministry incorporated as World Challenge, and through this non-denominational organization, we started outreaches and ministries to the poor, the addicted, and the homeless. In 1986, when I was in my 50s, the Holy Spirit called me to go back to New York City to start a church. God promised me that if I would accept this challenge, He would give us a theater on Broadway that would take my breath away, that He would fill it to capacity with God-hungry people, and that He would never lack for funds or have to beg for them. He has been utterly faithful to that word. Times Square Church began as an outreach of World Challenge, meets in one of the largest theaters in Broadway, is debt-free, and is filled with Jesus followers and Jesus seekers. When I made the return to New York some 20 years ago, I saw a worsened situation in the city. There was an increase in drug abuse and alcoholism among teens and in the numbers of addicted mothers whose children were growing up with no hope. From the beginning of Times Square Church, a major emphasis of our ministry has been helping the poor, the hungry, the destitute, and the addicted. Today, the vision has grown well beyond our borders. Roughly 2,000 volunteers from our church participate in more than 40 ministries, both in the United States and through outreaches worldwide. God has given us the privilege of serving people in more than 50 countries through long and short-term missions. In the past two decades, God has also given me a burden for pastors. I never wanted to attempt to minister to pastors until I had gray hair and had pastored a church myself. Now that I qualify by God's grace, He has released me not just to share my experiences, but to learn from my brothers. I have to say that I have never seen so many hurting pastors in all my years in ministry. I conduct ministers' conferences internationally and see great encouragement in men who are sometimes ready to quit their labors. Before every conference, I pray that God will bring unity to these faithful laborers, and to my great joy, many join in the genuine unity of the Spirit and receive loving conviction and strength from the Heavenly Father. What has happened to the main figures in the cross and the switchblade? What about Nikki, Maria, Israel, and Jojo? Several years after the cross and the switchblade was published, Maria visited the Teen Challenge Center on Clinton Avenue in Brooklyn. As I introduced her around the center, everyone asked her the same question. Reverend Wilkerson says you're still clean. Are you? Maria answered a ringing affirmative, and she gave the Lord credit for her new life. Was this the same girl who had threatened to kill herself because she had lost all hope? No, that was the old Maria. The young woman who testified to us of the Lord's power was a completely new creature created by Him. Shortly after her visit, Maria and her family returned to Puerto Rico. We have not been in touch for several years now. Israel's history was much rockier than Maria's. I am often asked if this young man came back to the Lord after his release from prison. He did, but it was not by an easy route. For a long time, I carried a great deal of guilt over Israel's return to his old ways. If only I had spent more time with the boy. If only I could have gotten him out of his neighborhood. If only I could not understand why he had returned to a gang and entangled himself in serious trouble. Years passed before I discovered the reason behind Israel's intense bitterness toward the Lord and toward me. It all started with a misunderstanding over a street address. Nikki and Israel were supposed to accompany me to speak in the small Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania church where I had started in ministry. I picked up Nikki at the agreed-on street corner at 7 that morning, and together we waited for Israel to show up. Unknown to us, Israel had been waiting at a different corner since 6. As the minutes passed, his enthusiasm rapidly turned to worry and finally to anger at my supposed indifference. Nikki and I tried phoning Israel's home, but with no success since he was not there. We waited for another hour. Finally, we were so desperately late that we had to rush on without him. I still do not know what caused that miscommunication, but in his heard and perceived rejection, Israel quickly returned to the gangs. 
It was after this that he became involved in a shooting that ultimately sent him to prison. I learned once again, however, that the Lord can redeem even our worst mistakes. From his very first day in the penitentiary, Israel was afraid. He knew that most newcomers were subjected to sexual abuse and forced into prison marriages with older inmates. Because of his smooth, youthful features, Israel was told by an old-timer he would be a target. The morning after my arrival, Israel later related, I was placed in a solitary cell. As the iron door slammed behind him, he felt utterly alone. He slowly took in the gray bleakness around him and was sickened by the stink of the prison. As his gaze turned to a corner of the cell, he saw a plate of fresh fruit. Suddenly, Israel was terrified. Had he already been chosen as the wife of an older prisoner? He backed away from the plate, throwing himself on the iron cot farthest away in utter despair. It was then Israel cried out his first prayer in months, God, please don't let this happen to me. The Lord did protect him. Israel later learned to his great relief that the fruit was a gift smuggled in by a fellow gang member incarcerated in the same prison. Sometime later, as he lay on his cot, he realized the experience had told him something important about himself. When he had thought he was in trouble, what was the very first thing he did? He turned to God. That, real, <clears throat> that realization started Israel on a journey back to the Lord. When he was released from prison, he found that his belief in God was stronger than ever. Today, Israel lives in Washington State, where he has a powerful ministry to losers, those who never quit, quite make it in life. He ministers in both the United States and Canada, teaching that in our disappointments, we may try to forsake God, but the Lord will never quit on us. What about Nikki? Like Israel, Nikki is so excited about the Lord that he uses every occasion to tell of his experiences. He published his testimony in an international bestseller, Run Baby Run, and founded Nikki Cruz Outreach and Truce to Reach Urban Children Everywhere, which trains inner-city youths and cities worldwide in aggressive outreach, using the tools of urban music and the performing arts. He has been gripped since the early 1990s by a passion to instruct others in evangelism, and he has reached millions around the world. Nikki's messages touch on the harshness of street life and the horror of drugs, but his focus is always on the power available to anyone for the Christian walk. The opposition is fierce, he says, but we serve a mighty and faithful God. Nikki's intensity connects with young people as he recalls his own fears hidden beneath a tough exterior during his street years. Today I marvel that this gentle, concerned man is the same one whose eyes flashed hatred as he held a knife against my chest. Many years ago, yet like Maria, Nikki is not the same person I knew then. <clears throat> he is one of the strongest witnesses I know to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We have him speak to our congregation at Times Square Church each year, whenever his schedule allows. He has reached millions in youth rallies all over the world. Finally, what about Jojo? He simply vanished after the story recounted in the book. Today, I do not know where he is, although many men across the country have claimed to be Jojo. Some have even spoken in churches, retelling the story of my giving up my new shoes for him. Most of these men, I am told, were far too old to have been Jojo. For the movie version of The Cross and the Switchblade, released in 1969, the character of Jojo underwent an unforeseen transformation. The part was taken by a girl. The director, Don Murray, called me one evening to say that a marvelous young actress had appeared at the auditions, but that he had no role for her. He wondered if I would object to Jojo's becoming a girl character. Since the real Jojo had disappeared, I saw no problem with the character change. Our prayer for the movie was that it would be used by the Lord to change lives, the lives of those who would watch it and the lives of those who actually worked on it. Pat Boone played me, and before filming started, I took him on a tour of some of the back alleys of New York City. He was shaken by the sight of ghost-like heroin addicts leaning against dingy buildings, their heads nodding from drug-induced stupors. I pointed out the spot where I first saw youngsters shooting up. 
As he stood on the same rooftop where I had first received my street education, Pat's eyes displayed the same helplessness I had felt years before. On another day, I took Pat to Little Korea in the Bronx. The kids there were delighted that they were being paid a visit by White Bucks, as Pat was known then. He used the moment to talk about drawing on the Lord's strength instead of trying to escape into a world of drugs. As the youngsters listened, several of them kept calling out, That's right, man. Pat told me he would never be the same after those trips to the streets. Years later, I was interested to learn that a book had been written by the judge in the trial that originally drew me to New York City. In The Jury is Still Out, Judge Irwin D. Davidson described to me <clears throat> the country preacher who had shown up in his courtroom as a lean, youngish man with light brown hair and a determined, almost fanatical look in his eye. Judge Davidson also wrote that the last three rows of spectator seats were filled every day of the trial by a grim phalanx of black-jacketed, greasy-haired boys and young men who had come down from uptown like an invading army in leather uniforms. It is no wonder I was recognized later by these young gang members who sat silently through the trial, staring and listening. My co-authors, John and Tib Sherrill, had prayed with my wife, Gwen, and me that God would use the book to reach people. That prayer has been answered beyond our farthest imagining. Sales have topped 15 million copies, and the book has been translated into 35 languages. The October 2006 issue of Christianity Today named The Cross and the Switchblade one of the top 50 books to have shaped evangelicals since World War II. The book even played a role in the renewal movement in the Roman Catholic Church. In February 1969, students and teachers at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, hungry for a spiritual reality, read the book in the first four chapters of the book of Acts and sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They received the Spirit, and historians now point to this awakening as the beginning of the charismatic renewal among Catholics. The original publisher of the book went bankrupt, as did the producer of the film. So, our ministry received only a pittance of the prophets. John and Tib Sherrill went on to tell the wonderful stories of Corey Ten Boom and The Hiding Place, and Brother Andrew and God's Smuggler, as well as many others. Both of those books also appeared on Christianity Today's Top 50 list. As for Gwen and me, we received assurance from the Lord that he would expand his own work in his own time. And so he has. There are now more than 550 Teen Challenge Centers across the United States and around the world. What has happened to the Wilkerson family? God has seen Gwen through more than 25 operations, five for cancer, dating back more than 40 years. It started with a tumor on her ovary, an ordeal that gave Gwen what we began to call the faith of Shadrach. In the book of Daniel, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looked into the fiery furnace and knew that God could deliver them. If he chose not to, however, they would accept that from him. Our trial of fire was a daily testing for each of us and for our marriage. Occasionally, it seemed to have defeated us. At one point, my beautiful wife suffered an emotional breakdown that required treatment from a Christian facility. In 1976, when another malignancy was discovered, Gwen's left breast had to be removed. Only someone who has sat in a hospital awaiting the outcome of that kind of operation can know the helplessness we experienced. Yet in those hours of terrible fear, the Holy Spirit comforted us. We learned that no matter the outcome, God's grace can cover the situation. Gwen and I, Gwen and I had hoped her long battle was over, but in June 1979, a swollen rib was discovered behind the area of the remo removed breast, causing her great pain. Part of Gwen's fifth rib was removed and diagnosed as non-malignant. More than a decade later, in 1991, Gwen had to have her other breast removed. In subsequent years, we have rejoiced over doctors' reports as there remains no trace of cancer in her system. During her crisis, Gwen received thousands of get-well cards, each a demonstration of the power of the prayers of the body of Christ. Today, Gwen says, 
We have to suffer ourselves if we are to help people who are hurting. And indeed, that is her ministry. She helps many through her ongoing work of encouraging others. The World Challenge staff, Gwen and I, pray for the needs of the thousands who are on our mailing list. We read as many letters as possible, interceding for those who write, rejoicing over their testimonies of victory, and believing God to answer every request. What about the rest of our family? In spite of health problems, our years have been joyful ones. Our daughter Debbie and her husband, (coughs) Roger Junker, are the founders of Father's Love Ministries. They have two sons, Brent and Matthew. Their daughter Tiffany died of brain cancer at age 13. Her death was one of the most difficult experiences our family has ever gone through. Yet even after illness weakened her body, Tiffany's faith was an example to many. She had clear, open communication with the Lord and was eager to go home to be with Him. Our daughter, Bonnie, and her husband, Roger Hayslip, have two sons, David and Brandon, and assist me in overseas responsibilities to the poor. Our son, Gary, and his wife, Kelly, have three sons, Ashley, Evan, and Elliot, and a daughter, Annie. In 2002, Gary began traveling with me to preach at ministers' conferences. He also leads Passion for Jesus conferences in North America, encouraging a single-hearted return to Christ's Lordship. Our son Greg and his wife Teresa have two children, Alyssa and Ryan. Greg is a missionary, youth evangelist, and director of New Remnant Ministries. Greg was born after Gwen's first cancer operation and has been affectionately labeled our miracle child. I am in my 70s now. I've been greatly blessed, and the Lord has preserved a good name for the ministry He has given us. All of this has been birthed in prayer. My desire at this stage of life is to provoke people to pray more, to seek the Lord myself in a greater way, and to see His people return to righteousness. David Wilkerson What about gang activity today? In the fall of 2006, it was my privilege to dedicate the opening of our Teen Challenge faith-based residential program in New Zealand. It was the 100th country into which this ministry has expanded. On that occasion, I shared three things that take place in each of the more than 450 Teen Challenge centers worldwide. Hope lives here. Freedom is found here. Changed lives leave here. For 50 years since my brother David founded Teen Challenge, Teenage gang members, adolescent and adult drug addicts, alcoholics, prostitutes, and others with serious life-controlling problems are finding these three statements a reality. Gang members from Brooklyn, New York, to Bombay, India, are being rescued from the mean streets where kids join gangs because it is what they must do to survive. The Bloods and the Crips make the headlines, but many other lesser-known gangs also present a challenge to inner cities and even to rural communities. The city of Los Angeles spends $82 million a year in anti-gang programs to reach out to 463 gangs with approximately 40,000 gang members. Teen Challenge in Los Angeles and Santa Ana and neighboring Orange County has full-time workers relating to gangs every week. Through programs such as street witnessing, open-air gospel rallies, camping and retreats, ministry to arrested gang members in juvenile hall, a prison, and other individual and group activities, gang members are often offered hope through the simple message that God loves them and that Jesus died for them so they do not have to die in a gang shootout or from a drug overdose. Some who have accepted Christ start sporting Teen Challenge God's Gang t-shirts around their neighborhood. All this is part of taking these young men and women through a discipleship process encouraging them to be positive leaders. The gang problem in Brooklyn and metropolitan New York City is not as severe as it was four and five decades ago as drug abuse has for many teens replaced gang life. But there remain pockets of gang action. As I write this, a 17-year-old from a New Jersey gang calls Teen Challenge in Brooklyn and asks if he can be admitted to the program. He is desperate for a place to go. He is on the run from his gang. The reason why, we do not know. His sister was killed by a rival gang. When asked where his parents are, he answers, I have no parents. 
He did not show up for his interview to be admitted to the program. The gang activity that goes on now is brutal. In the summer of 2007, three armed members of the Blood Street Gang forced their way around midnight into an apartment on Sterling Place on Crown Heights, Brooklyn. The gangbangers, two of whom were armed with pistols, with a third brandishing a shotgun, unleashed a three-hour frenzy of violence that began by pistol-whipping a 14-year-old boy, his dad, age 41, and another man, 22. All three were tied up. Demanding money, the attackers then raped a 17-year-old girl and her 43-year-old mother, who was the mother of the 22-year-old pistol-whip victim himself, a suspected blood. Stories like this are heartbreaking. Teen Challenge endeavors to work with gang members and ex-members who have turned to drugs often to escape gang life. Gang activity is happening internationally as well. In El Salvador, Honduras, and Cape Town, South Africa, street gangs are a way of life in almost every poor neighborhood, which means that gangs exist in most communities. Honduras Teen Challenge offers freedom from gang life and drugs to more than 100 young people in its residential center every day. Leaving the gangs there often means a death sentence. We've lost four guys, says one of the leaders. Two graduates and two fellows who left the program prematurely, killed by their own gang members. When we drive our bus full of the boys to church on Sunday, we have to take a different route each week. The gangs watch for the bus and shoot at it to send a message to the teenagers who had the courage to leave the gang. In San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, Teen Challenge residents were leaving church on a Sunday morning. Two were shot at. One was killed and the other survived. The young man killed had just been appointed an intern in the program, having completed the one-year residential program. Only 45 minutes before he was killed, he had given his first testimony before a thousand worshipers. The major thrust of Teen Challenge's program continues to be giving hope to hardcore drug addicts and alcoholics. Among adults, female prostitution is often the way of life that supports a drug habit. Drugs of choice vary from inner city to rural areas and from country to country. Crack cocaine and heroin enslave addicts in major cities in the U.S. and Europe. Methamphetamine is used in epidemic proportions by all classes of youth in America, especially in rural areas like Montana and Missouri. Our centers in the U.S. are seeing more uses of multiple substances, including an increased use of prescription drugs. Alcoholics are in the majority in teen challenge centers in Russia, the Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and in now-independent nations such as Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Teen Challenge in Kazakhstan is one of the largest centers in the world, with more than 600 residents in 12 different locations. Student residents are being set free from drugs and alcohol. Most of them, remarkably, are Muslims. In Pakistan, which is 98% Muslim, there are an estimated 5 million drug addicts, as high as 5.6% of the population. The poppy farms in neighboring Afghanistan yield readily accessible and inexpensive opium and facilitate heroin trafficking throughout northern Pakistan and through the whole country. Teen Challenge operates a men's and women's center in Pakistan sanctioned by the government. This in itself is a miracle. It is against the law to proselytize in Pakistan, but it is acceptable to share the word of God in teaching, song, and testimony. And if the students ask about salvation through Jesus Christ, answering the question is allowable. The center has been visited by the Pakistani version of the FBI. When the students are asked if Teen Challenge seeks to convert them, the students tend to reply, all they do is love us. The mother of one student addict in the program was told by her mullah, Muslim religious teacher, that if her son completed the program, he might be off drugs, but he'll be a Christian, and when he dies, he will not go to paradise. The mother responded quickly, I'd rather have a live Christian than a dead drug addict. I'll let Allah sort out the rest. Despite decades of the war on drugs, the substances are too often winning. Parents are losing their children through overdoses, HIV, AIDS, and other diseases. In the U.S., which has the largest prison population per capita, in the Western world, between 60 to 75% of inmates are incarcerated due to crimes associated with drug use. When young people walk through the doors of a Teen Challenge Center, however, they do so because we offer them the opportunity to encounter the higher power of all higher powers, Jesus Christ, 
Those who complete the program have a high probability of success in being free from their addiction and destructive lifestyle. Results have shown through documented studies and through Teen Challenge's own follow-up of graduates that change lives. One of the three things that take place in Teen Challenge centers do leave the program and remain free for life. Ricardo is one of the successful ones. At age 13, he became a member of the Wonder Kids gang in Cape Town, South Africa. At age 16, he rejoined the biggest gang in Cape Town, the 28s. To join, as Ricardo explained, I either had to spill blood by killing a rival gang member or by letting a male gang member have sex with me. His job was selling drugs, and as a result, he became a user. I started selling drugs full-time, he said, and a year later I was arrested. It wasn't long after getting out of prison when I was shot in the chest with a 357 Magnum. I thought I was a dead man, but my life was not over. God used the bullet Satan tried to destroy me with to begin transforming my life. While Ricardo was in the hospital, a Christian nurse invited him to church and he accepted Jesus. Back home and still officially in the gang, he prayed and asked God to get him out of gang life and bondage. The only way out of the 28s, he explains, was for one of the members to kill me or my mother or else rape one of my sisters. But the next morning I woke up and I felt God say to me, Leave now and I will make a way. I didn't understand, but I obeyed the voice. Although I was still wounded by the bullet that remained lodged next to my heart, I fled and jumped over a wall. As I was running down the road, a car pulled up beside me. The man inside said, You need to get away from this place. Get in. I know a place where you can get help. And he drove me to Teen Challenge. Jesus transformed my heart and mind, Ricardo told me, but Teen Challenge helped save my life. Ricardo is now on staff in the program, and he does drug intervention work in the schools, among other things, sharing his life-changing story with thousands of school kids. Having been an eyewitness and a participant in the Teen Challenge ministry for 50 years, I can say that the cross is still mightier than the switchblade, the narcotics needle or whatever substance young people use to poison their systems. From Brooklyn to Bombay, lives continue to be transformed by the power of God through Teen Challenge outreaches and residential centers. All over the world, I am approached by alumni who say, Please thank your brother David for being obedient to the Holy Spirit and going to New York City to help people like me. This ministry is successful because we plant a seed of hope that in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is possible to become a brand new person with a brand new life and future. Don Wilkerson, founder, Global Teen Challenge.